Now, as always, uh, if you've got a, a Bible with you, I encourage you to keep it open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we reflect uh, on that together. Uh, but first, I want to ask, does anyone, did anyone get into the show Undercover Boss on TV? Anyone ever watch? Yeah, a few, few people. That's more than whatever I mentioned last time. Now, I only ever watched it once or twice. Um, it's kind of entertaining, but it, it's quite a simple premise, really. Uh, CEOs or bosses of large companies, they pretend to be a new worker uh, and get in amongst the staff lower down in the organisation to see what's really happening and to understand the issues of the you know, organisation from a different perspective. Um, and as they do that, inevitably the boss or the CEO, they discover some people who are working really hard and doing a great job and he goes on to reward them and affirm them later on. But of course then there are some other workers who uh, get themselves into a bit of trouble for the way that they've been behaving and their work ethic uh, in front of the big boss without even realising it. Now, so for some employees, when you know, the, the boss reveals that, ta-da, I'm the CEO <laughs> all along, that's a happy moment because it's like, oh, wow, I can't believe this. Um, because you know, they're getting told that they're getting a promotion and a raise and they're being praised for their attitude and their great work and their contribution to the company. Um, but for others, it's really quite bad news. You know, it's kind of a dread creeps up their body and you know, flushes their face as they realise how they've been behaving, you know, the kinds of things that they've been saying, perhaps even things they've said about the boss to the boss. Now, neither kind of worker actually expects to discover that their CEO has been undercover working with them. But one kind of person works as if their boss is there with them, uh, you know, observing what they do. They work as if their manager or someone higher up could turn up at any moment. That's just the way they operate. Whereas the other kind of person seems to think that their boss would never show up. Uh, they can just do whatever they like. And these different attitudes and assumptions, well, they make a big difference when the boss does turn up, when he reveals that he's actually been there all along. Now, it's not exactly the same situation by a long way, but it's kind of similar to the day of the Lord that Paul talks about in our passage in 1 Thessalonians. On that day, Jesus will appear. He will reveal himself as Lord, the boss of all the world, of all there is. He will reveal that he's been in charge all along. Uh, he's been aware of what's been going on and he's come to call people to account. And Paul's point is that that, that is going to catch some people off guard, bringing shock and devastation. Uh, but for others, it will bring welcome relief, joy even. See, for those expecting it to come, knowing that it could come at any, any time, it'll be good news, a day to celebrate. Whereas for others, it will be a day they have been really denying and ignoring. Uh, and so they'll be completely unprepared for it. What Paul says in this passage about the day of the Lord, it follows on from the issues he raised at the end of chapter 4. If you were here last week, um, or you looked at the passage in Bible study, you might remember Paul has been talking about the great day in the future when Jesus returns as Lord, when he appears in all his glory and the dead are raised and, and all God's people are caught up to welcome Jesus and be with him forever in his kingdom. Now, in that passage, Paul was addressing an area of confusion. The Thessalonians were a little bit unsure what exactly would happen to their fellow believers who had died already before Jesus comes back. 
And so Paul writes to explain to them and to reassure them, don't worry, they're not going to miss out on anything. He writes to fill in the gaps. But here in chapter 5, he follows up that explanation with a reminder of what they apparently do already know. And he essentially says, now about when all this will happen, the times and the seasons, we don't need to explain anything to you. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The exact day and the time will not be known beforehand. It will just happen. Paul's reflecting the clear teaching that Jesus himself gave to his disciples, um, that Paul has obviously uh, already passed on uh, in some form as essential teaching when he was with them. In Matthew chapter 24, there's this large collection of, of teaching that Jesus gave his disciples about his return in the end times. And there he explains in verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So don't be fooled. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples and you know, what he's saying to us. Don't be fooled by people who claim to know when the end of the world is coming because Jesus couldn't have been clearer on this topic. If they tell you a date, well, you immediately know that they are wrong and they know even less than you do. If they tell you that this date has been worked out by a complex series of you know, mathematical equations from dates and prophecies in the Bible and it all fits together really well, well, then you know it's even more wrong. <laughs> They're just showing you how, how little they understand of the Bible as a whole. No one knows the day or the hour, only our Heavenly Father. See, rather than it coming as the conclusion of a whole lot of really obvious signs that can point to a particular time, with everyone standing around fully aware of what's about to happen, it will instead be like a thief coming in the dead of night. Again, Paul's borrowing Jesus' own language. In Matthew chapter 24, he goes, Jesus goes on to explain, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know at what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. If you knew when the thief was coming, you wouldn't get robbed. We don't know when Jesus will return. It will be like a thief coming at an unexpected hour. We just have to be ready and waiting, expecting him to come at any time, any moment. Because if you're not, you'll get caught by surprise, won't you? Paul, back in our passage in 1 Thessalonians, he explains in verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, for those who are complacent, who are not ready and waiting, not keeping watch, the day will come upon them in the form of sudden and unexpected destruction. Uh, again, Paul's reflecting the teaching of Jesus uh, to his disciples. Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 24, he explains, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and up until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For those who, who scoffed at Noah building this big stupid boat, you know, miles from the sea, they just kept enjoying life as they knew it. They disregarded Noah's warnings. They proclaimed peace and safety until they were swept away. 
Paul and Jesus describe the day of the Lord as a, a day of coming destruction because they're reflecting what the Old Testament prophets said about this great day to come. The day of the Lord was a great day of judgment that God had promised. It was described primarily as a terrible day for humanity because it was the day that humans would face the consequences for their sin. Uh, I don't know if you've read this passage before, but just uh, listen to the confronting language the prophet Isaiah uses to describe it in chapter 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will rise like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Shocking and confronting language, isn't it? God is describing a day, a terrible day, with cosmic consequences, a day of destruction and wrath against all human sinfulness. The day of the Lord is a day of reckoning on all humanity for their rebellion against God. And the prophets of Israel were keen to make sure that Israel didn't get the wrong idea about this day and think, well, we're safe because we're Israelites, you know, what can happen to us? So the prophet Amos, he cries out against his fellow Israelites, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? Throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord is portrayed as a, a terrible day that comes suddenly on the earth, bringing God's justice against all sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. No one will see it coming, but come it will. And so for those not ready and waiting for it, the day will come upon them like a flood of destruction. They will not escape. That's a sobering reality that we don't like to think about or let alone talk about very much. Uh, but that doesn't make it go away, does it? In fact, the, the whole point is that the worst thing we can do is pretend it's not coming. That Paul and Jesus, they're saying that's a sure way to get caught by surprise and swept away in this coming judgment. So if you're here today and you're exploring what it means to be a Christian, or you've been coming along to church but you're not really sure what you think about all this, you know, God-judging-humanity stuff, I want to encourage you to give serious consideration to what Jesus and Paul are saying here. See, I, I really understand that this part of Christianity is probably the least popular part in our culture. 
I was uh, at a Christmas party of some school friends last night and chatting about faith and stuff. And I, I can, I'm very confident they <laughs> would uh, not be a fan of these Bible passages. See, people are happy to hear about the loving your neighbour stuff and, and taking care of, your, of the needy, but they're understandably put off by this graphic and confronting language of God pouring out wrath on human beings. It's disturbing. But two things to keep in mind. Firstly, just because we don't like the sound of something doesn't mean it's not true. Just because we don't like the sound of it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't even really matter whether we think something is reasonable or fair. It's either true or it's not. We need to come to terms with that. See, more than any other person, Jesus spoke passionately about the coming judgment of God on humanity for our failure to live as he created and calls us to live, for our willful disregard uh, of his purposes for us, for, you know, really disregarding his sheer existence. And the apostles of Jesus, they proclaimed that the resurrection of Jesus, it, it proved that he was telling the truth. In fact, they said that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was declaring to the whole world that Jesus was the Lord, the one who would judge the world. Uh, Now, you can uh, ask me later about it if you want, but we have really good reason to believe that what the Gospels say about Jesus is true and reliable. And so we've got good reason to believe that what Jesus says in the Gospels is true and reliable. And so it's worth giving very careful thought and attention to what he says about the day of the Lord. That's the first thing to just keep in mind as we wrestle with this. But secondly, as much as we think we don't like the idea of of all this terrible judgment coming on humanity, we actually do like the idea of God's judgment. We we wouldn't like him not to bring justice. We all actually do want justice in the end. We're angered and we're saddened when we hear about people stealing from others, hurting them, exploiting vulnerable people. We can be furious when people abuse us, when they take advantage of us. We long to live in a world of peace and justice and wholeness. And really, that is what God's judgment is ultimately about. God is not letting the abuser get away with it. He is not letting exploitation just go on forever. God is furious against human sin, just like we are when we think about it. Uh, only that he sees it more clearly and his own purity and holiness leads him to hate it even more. So God's coming justice is actually very good news. It's just complicated news because as much as we're victims of evil, we're also perpetrators, aren't we? So please, if, if you know you're someone who's not really been ready and waiting for the day of the Lord, who hasn't really taken this stuff very seriously, hear the warning in God's word and give it very serious consideration. But for many of us here this morning, I think you are expecting this day. And Paul's primary audience in this passage is is those who are ready and waiting. From verse 4, he says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Even though Paul reminds them the day will come like a thief in the night and points out it will bring sudden and unexpected destruction for many, he's not trying to freak the Christians in Thessalonica out uh, about this coming day. He doesn't want them to fear it. No, because, says Paul, you won't be caught out by this day. It won't surprise you like a thief in the night. Why? Because you don't belong to the night. 
You are children of the day. You're not in darkness. You're awake. You're ready and waiting. See, Paul really plays around with the imagery of night and day in this section, doesn't he? All to reinforce the point that the day of the Lord is not bad news for followers of Jesus. Did you notice the the contrast inherent in verse 2? The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And now from verse 4, he pushes into that day and night imagery. And his point is that the day only comes like a thief in the night for those who belong to the night, for those who live in darkness. But for those who belong to the day to come, well, we live in the light of that day. We're awake. We're ready for it. It can't surprise us. It's the reality we already belong to. It's like this present age, this world that we live in, is the night, the age of spiritual darkness where ignorance of God and sin reigns. And the kingdom of God, the age to come, well, that's the day, the world of light and life. And those who trust in Jesus, who are waiting for him to return to establish this kingdom, well, even though we live in this world, in this present darkness, we don't belong to it. We belong to the day to come. We're children of the light. We're children of the day. Our identity in Christ, it determines our future, which determines what that day, what that great day actually means for us personally. So the good news is that for those who are in Christ, well, it's a day of salvation rather than wrath. As Paul explains in verses 9 and 10, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. The day of wrath, it is coming on sin, as we've seen. But for those who have acknowledged their sin, who have turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, who have turned away from false gods and self-service to serve the true and living God, well, they are no longer facing wrath on sin. They're looking forward to salvation. The, the promise uh, this promise of, of uh, it being a day of salvation, it's actually the fulfillment of all the positive promises that God makes about the great day of the Lord in the Old Testament. You see, for all the awesome and terrible prophecies of judgment on sinful humanity and on complacent Israel, the prophets did also proclaim that the day of the Lord was a day of hope and, and redemption. It, it was the day of vindication for God's true people, the, the remnant who had waited patiently for God's justice. It was the day of salvation. But as Paul points out, um, in the end, we don't look forward to salvation because we're the good people who deserve God's reward, uh, whilst everyone else, you know, the bad people, they deserve God's wrath. No, it's because the Lord Jesus died for us so that we might live together with him. The simple phrase, died for us, captures the the deep truths of the cross of Christ. Jesus died on our behalf. He died in our place. He died to pay the the price for our sins, to endure this day of wrath for us. You see, the truth is that on the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago, the day of the Lord came early, didn't it? The day of God's terrible judgment, all of that that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about, it came on Jesus in his body. Jesus has drunk that cup. He's faced our punishment. And he did it 
so that we might live together with him. So that the day of the Lord would not be the end of the road for us. Instead, it would become the promise of life for eternity, eternity with a God who loves us. So because Jesus died for us, we who trust in him, we've already passed through death. We've passed through that great day of judgment to receive life in God's kingdom. Whether we live or die in this world, that's what Paul means by whether we're awake or asleep in verse 10, or we're alive together with Christ. We live in that hope, that reality. We already belong to the day. And so for us, it's a day of salvation, a day when we receive the salvation that belongs to us in Christ. It's a day when we are revealed for who we really are. And so Paul's logic at the heart of this passage is, if we belong to that day, if that's our future, that's who we are, well, let's live for that day. So he exhorts us uh, from verse 6 in the middle of the passage. So then let's not be like the others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Now remember, he's working with the metaphor of belonging to the day or the night. He's not saying that Christians don't sleep. I think you probably know that. Uh, He's not even primarily trying to say that you shouldn't go and get drunk, although he is kind of saying that by implication. He's saying we are day people, not night people. So we should do things that day people do. And in the metaphor of day and night, that means wake up, get up, be sober-minded, get out there, ready for action, rather than, you know, going off to sleep, getting, you know, drunk and and falling asleep at late-night parties. Now, in, in reality, what he's talking about is behave as people who are spiritually awake. We're people who belong to God's coming kingdom of light, not the present age of sin and darkness. So walk in a way that is worthy of that coming kingdom, that belongs to it, that's fitting of it. Be conscious of God's will and his purposes. Embrace his call to live holy lives, to love one another more and more. And do it because you know that the day of the Lord is coming and because you belong to that day. So clothe yourselves ready for that day with faith and love as a breastplate, with a hope of salvation as a helmet. Now, as we take on board what Paul's saying, as we think about what that means for us, we need to appreciate that people who are asleep, who belong to the night, um, according to Paul, well, they won't necessarily look like it. They're not all walking around in a, a drunken, sleepy stupor. You know, they're, they're not bad people. They're people who are living for this life. They may look like they're getting the best out of this life, living it to the full. They're proclaiming peace and safety. They're enjoying the good things of this world. The issue is that they're doing so in denial of the day that is to come. They're absorbed in the things of this world, this life, as an end in and of itself. And so for all their apparent life and zeal, Paul says, they're actually asleep. And so the day will come upon them suddenly and catch them off guard, like a thief in the night. In contrast, Christians are those who engage fully in life and enjoy God's blessings in this world, but as people who know that they belong to that day to come. We live in this world recognizing the spiritual darkness of this present age. 
We work, engage in friendships, marriage, family life. We enjoy food, the pleasures of this world, but without becoming absorbed in them, without falling asleep and failing to watch for the day that is to come. But that's not always easy, is it? And so as Paul concludes, we need to remember, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as in fact you are doing. Help each other, find meaningful ways to to prompt and remind each other that we belong to that day, to to, um, remain ready and waiting for it, not to lose track. Encourage each other to put on faith, love and hope. Challenge each other where necessary. When we slip into thinking, talking, behaving, like people who belong to the night, when we forget who we are, remind each other that we are children of the light waiting for that day, ready for our Lord to appear as Saviour and Judge. Encourage each other, just as, in fact, you are doing. Well, one way that we're going to encourage each other in these truths is to sing a song that is all about living for the day that is to come. Uh, so I'm going to invite the musos and singers up. Um, we Belong to the Day is a song by Emu Music that um, is directly inspired by this passage. It's filled with the language of this passage and 1 Thessalonians in general. Um, it's probably a new song to a number of us here, and we may or may not add it to our regular list, but when we sing it, you'll realise it's just too perfect not to sing after having read and reflected on that passage together. Um, so... I want to invite you to let the words of the song encourage you all the more to embrace your identity as people who belong to the day, the day that is to come, when the night falls away and our Saviour will return. For the glory of the King is in our hearts, and on that day we will be seen for what we are. Let's stand together and sing, We Belong to the Day.